The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Go to chapter 5 of Matthew. And today we're going to look at one verse, but I want to read a couple of verses. And then we'll pick up on the rest when I come back. And we're going to start in verse 13. Jesus continues the sermon. Last week we talked about being persecuted for righteousness and for his sake. And then he says in verse 13, beginning in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city is set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And again, we're going to look at verse 13, which says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You know, many times I would purchase glue or some caulk and use it on a project. I don't know if anybody does that. but um, And then I would, when I'm done, I put like a cap back on it where I'll write tight with a, with a rubber band, put some plastic around it, and put it away. But then I come back a year later, it's all dry. It is good for nothing. Anybody have that problem? Sometimes it's not a good idea to leave paint out in the garage during the winter because I discovered next you want to pull it back during the springtime is going to be good for nothing. Jesus just finished a list of attitudes that we are to have in our lives. It's a list what we are to be. And then completing that list, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And the word are indicates his concern with what we are, our being. Because what we are, when that is right, then what we do will also be right. And when we Christians implement these beatitudes in our life, we demonstrate them, we become the salt of the earth. When we possess these characteristics that we've been talking about over the several weeks, not only it indicates that we are part of his kingdom, but we will also have a positive influence and make a difference in the world around us. And in this verse, he's using the salt as an object lesson. Jesus tried to get across to the people, their listeners, there's something valuable. You're the salt. You're valuable in this world. But he also gives us a warning that says, you can also end up being for good for nothing. A little boy asked his mother if she would give him $5 if he'd be a good boy. And she said, well, son... Why don't you be good for nothing like your father? And there are a lot of Christians who are that way. We're good for nothing. We lost our flavor. And for good for nothing, all it's good for is to be thrown out. So God tells us there's a possibility to be good for nothing Christians. But the question is, am I one of them? He's talking about his followers You know, they go to church, they love the shaker, they go to shaker every week, that's where all the salt hangs out, but then he says, when it comes to my kingdom program, or my purpose, they're good for nothing, except to be walked on, and that's why the world is really walking on Christians these days, because Instead of impacting the world, rather being impactful, we show no difference in the world because good-for-nothing Christians. Today, I want to talk about salt, and the following Sundays, when I return, we'll talk about light. 
Then why talk about salt? Just like when we talked about purity of heart, we used the word integrity. When we talk about salt, I want you to think of influence. The word influence. You know, I read a story about a Woodrow, President Woodrow Wilson. He shared a story. He said he went to a barber shop, and while he was getting his hair cut, another man walked in and sat in the next chair next to him. And he said, you know, I could tell by the way he was speaking, he was not an educated man, but he showed particular interest in the guy that was cutting his hair. And during their conversation, He was just listening to man, man talk and so forth. And then he said, uh, when he was done with his hair, the whole barbershop was listening to this man that was next to him. And he had a kind of an impact because people didn't even know his name, but he had an impact. They were kind of whispering things and saying things. But the man next to him in that chair was Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody. And he said during that barbershop experience, he felt like he went into the worship service. Instead of leaving a barbershop, he felt like he was leaving a worship service. And that conversation that he had with that man, just cutting his hair, Dwight Moody, impacted all the people around him. So he said, what influence one man can have on the people around him? So what's the world saying when we pass by? And folks, whenever you know it or not, really, we're influencing people around us for good or bad, your people that you keep in contact with. You're influencing and forming characters, your own and of others. So this is what Jesus is teaching here in these verses in 13 through 16. He's talking about influence. He's saying you are characterized by this beatitude quality life. You're the sons and daughters of the kingdom. You become son, uh, the salt and the light. And you influence the world for good and for God. So how can we be in the world and not of it? How can we be sent to the world and not love it? Well, he gives us the answer. You see, it's salt and light. And salt, in order to be effective, really has to be mingled with another substance it's affecting. But yet, the salt still has this distinct flavor. You know, light, to drive out darkness, has to shine on darkness. It's distinct. So these characters make us distinct, these beatitudes. And as we enter the kingdom in these conditions that we talked about, we manifest these characteristics here on earth. And you're going to have a positive effect on the world, like it or not. Now, the world will react negatively, and we talked about that last Sunday. Many times they will react negatively. But there are a few that will act positively Believe and will be saved. You know, as we uh, read, we studied persecution last Sunday. It's interesting if you look again in verses 10 through 12. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for they so persecuted prophets before you. In other words, you're going to live these beatitudes, a godly life. There's a guarantee you will be persecuted. And again, we talked about persecution. doesn't mean necessarily they're going to come off and cut off your head and shoot you. It could involve that, but there's many other ways. But what happens is when you're persecuted, God says that shouldn't change your function. You will be persecuted, but be the salt. If you look at verse 13 again, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Do not forfeit your saltiness. You are still the light of the world. Don't, you know, go and hide somewhere. 
Don't let persecution alter your function. And in 1 Peter 2.9, he reminds us, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who were called out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Look at the distinctions. We are the chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own. And what's the purpose? To manifest, to influence, People around us. Now, we cannot bend to the world. We cannot bow down to the world. Even if we are persecuted, we should not be altering our commitment. And I was reading about Martin Luther, one of the leaders of Reformation. and He said, I cannot recant. I will not deny that which is true. You can't go back. And that's the way we are to live. We have to face the music. Or in biblical terms, you have to take up the cross and follow Christ. We are to be different in this world. Not odd, but different. Poor in spirit, mournful, meek, thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking. And even though we're persecuted, we should not isolate ourselves. This happens a lot. You know, go live in a monastery somewhere. Because salt... We're to influence. And another thing to pay attention to where he says you're the salt of the earth because there is no other. You're it. God reaches other people through us, through the church. So if we lose our saltiness, then we become good for nothing. And really, this text also presupposes two things. The world is decaying. That's why you need salt, and we'll talk about that, because salt preserves. And the world is dark. That's why he says you are the light. So salt is needed where there's decay. Salt is needed where there's corruption. Light is needed where there's darkness. And you know, watching the news and so forth, what's happening in our country, all over the world. People give advice how to make this world better. I don't mean to be a party pooper. The world is not going to get any better. And we as Christians need to realize that, but we as these Christians have this peace in us too that we don't need to panic. And 2 Timothy 3.13 says, but evil men and imposters will grow from worse to good (laughs) <laughs> no, it says worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, you know, sometimes I hear those things, and it's absolutely ridiculous. It's like a pipe dream thinking that this world is going to get better. Well, it wasn't good to start with after the fall. It's bad, and it's getting worse. And, you know, sometimes I hear people say, some scientists, that we're still evolving you know, we're still evolving and we're getting better and so forth. What are, we have incredible amount of science, technology, medical knowledge, and philosophy, you know, all this kind of stuff. And Are things getting better? Is mankind improving the world around him? No, because the biblical worldview, our culture in the world, it's dark and it's getting darker. Please know that. It's not getting better. It's going to get worse. And despite that, we have the advancement in scientific knowledge, educational, and all that kind of stuff. Think about it. Have any of those things really improved society? Our accomplishments have increased, right? But in a sense, our purpose, meaning, is disappearing. Think of what the purpose and meaning of the family, for example. It's disappearing. All modern man did was just discovered new ways to corrupt and destroy himself. That's all we did. We go from war to war, from immorality to greater immorality. You know, when I came to America, some sins weren't even, you know, they're in the back alley. Now they are up front. They have their own parade. They get their own month. So our humankind is moving downward, not upward. That's what the Bible teaches. 
And that's why Jesus says you need to be the salt and the light of the earth. You know, let me use this famous story about advancement in technology. Everybody knows the Titanic, right? Everybody knows the story with that? People decided they would build the largest, most luxurious cruise ship. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. They got all these educated engineers. And after years of planning and building, it was a thing of beauty. They were proud of it. That's fine. Being educated, increased, they had increased their knowledge. You know, they had more knowledge and technology than Noah did when he built his ark, right? But unlike Noah, and speaking of the Titanic, one of the engineers foolishly said, God himself couldn't sink this ship. Really? The leading technology of the day sunk after it hit an iceberg. That's how we are. This ego thinks we're moving up, but the Bible says we're getting worse. So sometimes people say, and Christians, they don't want to be the salt and light because of all the responsibilities that comes with it, and we'll talk about that. You know, I hear some Christians move out to Alaska. They let's move out somewhere. There's some that are doing this. They build Christian villages, you know. They say we'll have Christian cars, Christian homes, Christian dogs, Christian cats. Maybe not cats. Cats are always evil. But we'll have our own culture and so forth. Well, folks, that's not a biblical view either. It's not. You see, we want to influence the culture around us. And the world in Jesus' day, in his time, it was decaying. And all we've done since that time is just increase the volume, turn up it louder, but invented new ways to, you know, destroy ourselves. And if you think about it, when God destroyed <laughs> how wicked men are, when God destroyed the first world with the flood, it only took six chapters. Chapter one, God created men. Chapter six of Genesis, there's a flood. Only eight people on the boat. Eight righteous people, put them on the ship with a whole bunch of animals. It's a perfect world to begin with. But you see, sin entered in and polluted the whole thing. The world started decaying. And man is just worse and worse because he's infected with this germ called sin. And the only antidote for that is God. But man will not have God because he loves his darkness. And that's why the Bible says the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the Jesus view and view of any thinking, logically, person. But folks, God has a plan. Salt and light. He sets up in the world, he says, a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests, like kings and priests, and says, you're going to slow down the corruption. You're going to slow down the decay. You're going to be the salt and light. But it's so sad. Instead of the church influencing the world, complete opposite is happening. Complete opposite is happening. Church is being influenced by the world, and the church has fallen victim. So many trends in our human society, it's, folks, ridiculous, ludicrous what the church has become, and generally speaking. But Jesus knew that it was going to happen. And that's why in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You see that? You. Who has the responsibility? You, believers, that's who he's referring to, salt and light. The very ones who are being persecuted by the world are the very ones that are hated by the world. You're not to retreat someplace in the woods or Alaska or run from persecution, but you are to stand in this world and hold that responsibility of being salt and light. All those who possess the character of the kingdom are it. That's it. And again, folks, you 
It means individually and collectively, right? Because if you ever go to have dinner and you take a salt shaker, do you just put the salt out and then take individual salts and put it on there? No, right? It takes all of us. It's not, alone, it's not enough for us alone to do it. We are to do it collectively. So, folks, one of the reasons that the world is the way it is, we look at sinners, we, we look at politicians, we look at leaders and say, ah, oh, they're so sinful. Newsflash, that's what sinners do. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But another reason the world is the way it is is not merely because of their sinfulness, but because the salt. Don't leave the salt shaker. We're not influenced anything. Problem is not that evil people are evil. Our problem is that righteous people aren't righteous. An idea here is not, God is not saying, Jesus is not saying, please be salt. He says, you are salt. If you're demonstrating these characters, you're going to get persecuted, and you are salt, and you are light. So how does salt manifest itself? You know, back in that day, salt was very valuable. Romans actually had a saying that they said there was nothing more valuable than the sun and salt. Because in those days, they didn't have refrigeration and so forth. That was the only way they could preserve meat, fish. Roman soldiers were even paid with salt. Ever heard that saying, saying, he's not worth the salt? That's where it comes with. There were actually salt covenants in the Bible. Salt was very valuable. If you look at 2 Chronicles in chapter 13, verse 5, it's a, God speaks of the covenant of salt that he made with David. And he says, should you not know that the Lord God of Israel have dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons? And then it says, by a covenant of salt. It was a common thing in that part of the world to add salt to the covenant. If we translate it to our day, you know, they didn't have public notaries to stump, stamp a document. So when they wanted to authenticate something, a legality of the document, they will call in witnesses and two people will eat salt. Did you know that? Weird thing, right? Weirdos. And by the way, also God prescribed it in sacrifices, partly to be a preservative, but if you look in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, it says, In every offering of grain, offering you shall season with salt. You should not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. Don't lack. Put some more salt on it. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So it was a very important commodity of that day. So what does salt do? So let's talk about pure salt because there's also this polluted salt that's good for nothing. But this pure salt, what does salt do? Common thing, it seasons, Right? It adds flavor. The world is tasteless, dull, lifeless. You know, eggs are awfully anyway. I don't really like eggs that much. But if you put salt on them, they're kind of good, right? Anybody like eggs? Anybody have any eggs? Because then it looks like anybody, nobody have any breakfast this morning. You know, again, I remind you guys, we do have the coffee shop open. Get some caffeine in you. But what salt does is it seasons. You see, we are to give life, give society a flavor, a tang, a zest in the world. In other words, also, the idea that God blesses the believers and the unbelievers who stand around get the spill off. Did you know that? The world should really think as Christians, true Christians. Well, See that here shortly. Because, you know, when the rain falls, when God sends rain to the just, don't the unjust get wet too? It spills over. The world, what would the world be without Christians? We'll talk about that. Because as long as the church here, we really are preserving the world. And, you know, in unsafe people, 
also get some benefit, not necessarily spiritual. But in 1 Corinthians, we read in chapter 7, verse 14, says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, I want to make sure that you understand it has not, nothing to do with salvation here, being a believing Christian. Um, you know, that's the only way to be saved. So if your spouse is not Christian and you're a Christian, your spouse is not saved. But what he's saying here is when God blesses the believing spouse, doesn't the unbelieving spouse also get some kind of blessing? For example, your refrigerator broke, right? And God blesses the believing spouse with a bonus. They go buy a new refrigerator. Isn't the unbelieving spouse also blessed? Not only by the refrigerator, but what's in it. So they get the spill off. But I don't think earth thinks of us as salt. They think of us exactly the opposite. And partly some of it is our fault. You know, they think we're the ones that make this world tasteless. Trying to live it up, party it up, and here we come, ruin it all, right? So they say, I don't want to be a Christian. It's boring. Can't do anything. I was reading one man wrote, a young man said, I might entered the ministry of certain clergymen I knew had not looked like so much like the undertakers. There's seriousness things in our lives, but we should not be walking around with our faces sad all the time. You know, growing up in the Russian church, and you have to understand the culture because they were truly persecuted, you know, with the communist regime. So when they get to church, they all look depressed. <laughs> But that's not the message we'd be sending to the world. There was a Scottish novelist and poet. His name is Robert Louis, Louis uh, Stevenson. He <clears throat> wrote in his diary. He actually started going to church, but he went to church one time, and he wrote this. It's interesting. I've been to church today, and I'm not depressed. We shouldn't have depressing services. Folks, there's, you know, sometimes people say you're, you know, pessimist, or we'll talk about that in here in a second, but I'm, I'm a realist. There's things to deal with which are kind of depressing, but that's the reality. But we shouldn't always be depressed. And so the world, when we act that way, doesn't necessarily see us, us contributing some kind of flavor to the world. Because they don't see any excitement, no thrill, in following the Lord Jesus in the Christian's life. Their lives are tasteless, just like theirs, flavorless. It's bland, leading to bland. But we are Christians who are different. You know, in Colossians, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 6, says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You need to have some salt in your speech so you know how to answer the world, how to talk to the world. So this, to me, talks to me about something about every Christian. There should be something absolutely exciting. And do you know why we do have boring sermons? Now, I'm not talking about those exciting sermons that don't contact, you know, I'm not talking about we should have those that don't have any gospel at all either. But a lot of boring sermons are because the pastor himself is bored. There's no excitement in studying God's word for him. A lot of Sunday school teachers bore in classes. Why? Because they get to class and it's just like, you know, a checklist. They're bored themselves. Well, if you're excited, you might pass on that excitement to others. You know, a preacher went to a doctor and said, Doctor, can you give me something to help me because of my snoring? He said, you keeping your wife awake? He said, no, I'm keeping the whole congregation awake. You know, he falls asleep during his own sermon, and the congregation falls asleep too. Now, I see some of you falling asleep when I'm preaching, but I'll wake you up. A Christian should have flavor, zest, there's edge. Again, I'm not talking about entertainment, light, but excitement, this excitement of following the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, you're the salt 
in light of the world. That's what Jesus says you are. What else can be more exciting than being salty and lit? Christians are not supposed to be bland or so forth. We're not. You ever go and order lukewarm coffee? No, you either get hot or cold, right? Hopefully you get hot. It's like drinking an unconverted like Coke. You ever go to McDonald's, get a Coke, but there's no carbonation in it? And you're like, should I turn around? You're like, no, too much. I'll just drink it anyway. So we have to have flavor. We have to be different. And I'm not talking about the world's different. Christian different. There should be excitement in your life about following the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, another thing salt does is preserves. Again, it was necessary in those times for the fishermen and so forth, preserving fish, meat. You know, what happens when we have disaster in the world, like this COVID? Remember when COVID first hit? People were going to churches. Then when everything transitioned online, um, I believe I was reading a, a harvest church in, out in California where Greg Laurie's a pastor. They had like 13 million people viewing a worship service all at once. Almost caused their internet to be down. You know, and as things died down, people, of course, kind of went away. But where are the people go when bad things happen to church but do they not think what's going to happen when the church is removed all the demons the hell will be released it will go get wild so really while the church is here we're antiseptic we're preserving the earth when the church is taken up and the Holy Spirit that works through the church, all these standards will be gone. So you know right now they're saying, and personally some of those people that are persecuting you don't like how the Christians think. We don't like their philosophy. We don't like their theology. We don't like, we don't like anything about those Christians. They're so boring. But when the church is going to be taken up, you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to be looking for us. And in Amos chapter 8, 12, it says, they shall wander from sea to sea. And from north to east, they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. So while we're in this world, we really check this rottenness. We kind of slow it down. But the only way you're going to do it, if you haven't lost your flavor. Makes me think of, you know, we talk about the Sodom and Gomorrah, the twin cities, two evil towns, right, that God destroyed. You know, it was evil town, homosexuality reigned, and so forth, oppression of the poor. There was moral chaos. And God says, you know what, I had enough. I'm going to destroy them with fire. You guys know that story? But what's interesting is God was at the decision point to destroy these cities, and here comes Abraham. And Abraham says, hey, there's some righteous people in there. And he says in verse 23 in Genesis 18, and Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? He says, God, you don't want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want to wipe out the wicked and the righteous at the same time, there's righteous people there. And Abraham, in that story, I'm going to kind of summarize it for you. He says, what if there's 50 righteous people? Would you, would you, would you spare it? God says, if there's 50 righteous people in that town, I'll spare it. Then he comes back and says, it's interesting. Lord, don't be angry, but what about 40? He says, okay, there's 40, I won't, I won't. Destroy it. Then he comes back, Lord, don't be angry. What about 30? He says, I will spare it. Then he goes, what about 20? 
And then finally he says, Lord, don't be angry. What if there's only 10? Look at verse 32. He said, then he said, Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more, once more, God. Started with 50. Suppose 10 should be found there, and he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. God says, if you can find me 10 righteous people in that town, I won't destroy it. So, really, the question is, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? You see, not only it was destroyed because of the evil people there, but it was also destroyed because righteous people were nowhere to be located. You're to be the salt, but where are they? God says, if you can find me ten people, I would spare thousands of people for the sake of ten. But you know, there was a righteous person there. His name is Lot. But before I even get there, I'll tell you he was good for nothing. Lot, the Bible says, was righteous. He had a righteous soul. He had personal standard. He wasn't doing and participating, doing any of that stuff the world was. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And it says, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented in his righteousness soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. But he was a righteous man, but he was suffering from a disease because his personal righteousness did not go public. He didn't want to leave the salt shaker. As a matter of fact, he didn't even transfer it to his own family. You know, when God is getting destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he goes to his son-in-laws, and they just laugh at him. They're like, what's wrong with you, pops? You kidding me? You don't believe me? Look at Genesis 19, verses 14 and 15. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws and had married his daughters and said, get out. Get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. And in verse 15, when the morning dawned, and angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you consumed in the punishment of the city. So he told his wife, two daughters, we're leaving. They got out. What happened to the wife? If Lot was so righteous, the wife started looking back to the world. You know, she saw Macy's, Bloomingdale's, all that stuff. And instead of being salt, she became a pillar of salt. And what happened afterwards with his two daughters? They had this relationship with their father. They wanted kids. They didn't have any husbands, so they got their father drunk. You see, if Lot would have won his family, that would have been six. And if each one of them would have won one, that would have been 12. And Abraham would have found 10 righteous people in that city. And that city probably would still be on the map. But it was destroyed for the sin of those people. It was also destroyed because righteous people were nowhere to be found. I don't know, maybe they were all at church or something. They don't want to leave the salt shaker. Ten righteous people could have spared the entire population. See, we got to be in the world. We can't isolate ourselves. Isolate from the world? Isolate for ourselves from the sinners? No. We have to rub it in, right? You take salt, you rub it into the meat, right? You don't just put it in. And sometimes salt is lost. It sacrifices itself, but you can still taste it in the meat. But we Christians, we got so mixed up with this world, we've gotten so mixed up with this other kingdom that people can't differentiate anything different. No flavor. They're just, Cornelius, just like us. There's nothing that he can offer us. He's got no flavor. 
because we become like the world. And when that happens, we're good for nothing. What else does salt do? Well, salt not only gives flavor, preserves, it also heals. Anyone have any dental surgery? Remember your new wisdom teeth pulled out? And your doctor says, you know, get some warm water, put some salt in it, goggle it. Salt is an antiseptic, reduces inflammation and so forth. And if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, it's fascinating really use of salt in that time. It talks about the birth of a baby. And in this verse, it really says thing, the proper things were not done to Israel because Israel was born, but these are proper things that were supposed to be done when the baby's born, but they weren't. And it says, as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. You know, we usually cut it, but it was not. Nor were you washed in the water to cleanse you, nor you were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. So they're not salting the baby to eat it. But again, this is a description of Jerusalem's birth. And Ezekiel here describes the procedures, the treatment that would ordinarily be administered in a normal baby delivery. In a process, you know, there'll be some nicks, scratches, and that's what they would do with the baby. Wash it in salt water. And in book of Second Kings, Elijah put a curse on, of salt into some deadly polluted waters because there was sin and wickedness in the land. And how did he heal the waters? If you look at Second Kings chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, it said, bring me the new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. So he went out to the source of the water and cast the salt in there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. Because they drink it, people die. But now he healed it as a symbol of cleansiness, healing. Salt has healing properties. Now sometimes the healing properties of salt, this is what we're supposed to be, preserving, healing. Doesn't salt sting sometimes? So Jesus is saying, you're the salt. We're not to be honey and smooth every, smooth this sinful world, cover up things. You know, sometimes we use honey, then salt, when we're confronting the world. We just drip honey on everyone, and we don't want to offend anyone. Go along, it will be all right. You know, sometimes I do hear, God is in control, it'll be okay. Well, it is. God is in control. But salt stinks. It doesn't say your honey, it says your salt. And what I mean by that is we're always going to have that persecution part. We're always going to have a problem where we're not going to please everyone. And you have to accept that. Nobody's ever going to say Christians are so loving and tolerant. Well, not of true Christians. You see, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are aroma of death leading to death. You see that? You smell like death to some. You're born. You're stinging. And to the other, you're the aroma of life leading to life and who is sufficient for these things. In other words, we're honey to the believers who people accept the message but we're also going to be the salt to unbelievers. And many Christians don't accept that. All they think about is living comfortably, don't upset anyone in here and so forth. If I say these things, I might lose a business contract or something like that. They don't want to be confrontational. And we just kind of gloss over it. But as Christians, Especially in our families and our loved ones who are not saved, you should be salt, irritating, irritating salt. You should be what it says in John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. You go around and tell people the truth. 
You're forgiven because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You're not forgiven because you don't believe in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Now, salt, it stings, it burns. Now, I don't think that's all there is to it, but it burns, it irritates. You ever have an ulcer or some kind of knickknack in your mouth and then you eat some salad, a tomato with some salt on it? Woo! And that's what the world wants. That's what most people want. They want the non-irritating brand of the gospel. But we preach the whole gospel. There's the good parts and there's the bad parts. The gospel is the good news. Well, in order to have the good news, you have to have what? Bad news, right? So no offense means no effect. If you truly describe this world, you preach to this world, you're going to be kind of irritating because man loves his darkness. Salt burns, it irritates. Not only that, but it also penetrates. We talked about penetrating society. You know, you, you put a teaspoon of salt into a gallon bucket of water. It's going to penetrate the whole bucket. We use salt during the winter months, right? We put it on roadways. It penetrates. But in many churches, we just become these gigantic salt warehouses that never leave. We want to stay in the salt shaker because it's safe here. Salt likes to hang out with salt because we come here, we are comfortable, right? For the most part, most of us Christians, we come here because we want to be here with like-minded people. We feel safe. A lot of you nod and so forth. But he says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 13 again, if it loses its flavor, how shall the world be seasoned? You know, we feel safe in our churches, again, because most of us agree with each other. But the problem becomes yours and mine when we, we're salt in here, but when we go out into the world, right? Rub shoulders with the unbelieving people at work, grocery stores and so forth. We're not acting like the salt. It's not as easy being salt out of the shaker as in the shaker, is it? In many cultures, and we see it around the world today, it hasn't come to this country yet, but it's coming. People are truly persecuted, killed for their faith because they're the salt. And you know, I kind of view this as a huddle. Anybody watch football? You know, especially the Super Bowl, sold out crowds. I don't know, what is it, 80,000 people are watching? But those people didn't pay all that money for the tickets for the come and see the football team to have a huddle, right? They want to see what that huddle produces. What kind of play are they going to run? How are they going to impact the other team? But we come in here, say, oh, sang some great songs. Sermon was all right. Corny can't pronounce half the words anyway. But that's not what the world should see. The world should see how you're penetrating. The world should see how you're throwing a touchdown from that huddle. And when you start doing that, do you know what the world starts doing? What another thing does the salt do? It creates thirst, doesn't it? They see these great plays. They see these great lives. Something's happening. They get thirsty. Salt creates thirst. The movie theaters got this down real good. You know, that's why they always try to upsell you with that big bag of popcorn. They say, well, this small one is $3. I don't know the prices. I'm just making up. This bigger one's $4. But this huge one is 5 It's a deal. All right, you buy that bag of popcorn. You go sit there, and you're like, I'm thirsty. And you're like, hey, can I have a cup of water? Sure, $150. 
So it's our job to make this world thirsty. And people hanging around us all day, and they don't want to drink from your fountain, maybe because we're not salty enough. In order to become salty, we should have thirst as well. And we talked about that in verse 6, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Now, when you come out of the huddle and you throw a great play, people are going to say, how would you do that? People are going to come up to you and say, how do you have so much peace in this situation? Why is it that you always seem to have answers? Why is it that you're poorer than me, but yet you're content? Your family is so happy. Well, I'm just drinking that juice. Jesus juice, righteousness. And when you do that, we get what? Peace. Peace. And where do we get that peace? It comes from the Father. You can't get it at Costco. You can't find that peace juice at Costco. We talked about peace. Gospel of peace. They may not like our theology. They may not want to know our Christ, but they will see a lifestyle and it will make them thirst for that. You know, we had in our Russian church a Muslim came and he converted to Christianity and he came from Uzbekistan as well. And I kind of asked him to share his testimony and I said, you know, because the family disowned him and all that kind of stuff because you switched from being a Muslim to Christianity. That's a dangerous thing. So I asked him, like, what prompted him to accept Christ or switch over to Christianity? And what he told me was he was in Uzbekistan and his friend had another friend who lived in New York, and he died. Unfortunately, he wasn't a citizen, so they had to bring the body back. So he said he will assist, but they didn't know anybody in America. So, you know, how do they get the body from New York all the way back to Uzbekistan? But he remembered that somewhere in the neighborhood there was some American missionary that participated with the Russian church. So he went to him and asked him if he had any contacts or how he can get in contact with embassies or whatever and so forth. And he helped him out. But he said, in my conversations, I came to him. It wasn't necessarily to talk about Christ or anything like that. He said, I came over to his house. His kids were always disciplined, always listened to him. There was no arguments. His wife was polite. They just had a family that I wanted to have. So I started asking him questions. How do you have all this? And that's when the missionary started talking about, I'm drinking that Jesus juice. And he says, well, I want that too. And he started changing the conversation and talking about Christ. And now his wife, him, are following the Lord Jesus Christ instead of Allah. They should be that flavor, something that they thirst for. But folks, if you look at that verse again, it says, if it's losing that flavor, it'll be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. You see, during those days, much of their salt came from the Dead Sea. And that salt was not pure salt. It was contaminated salt. And they couldn't use it on your table or anything like that. It was valueless. There's no value in that kind of assault because it's polluted. And the only thing it was good for is to throw down on the road. And they sometimes use that salt if you had a conflict with somebody, if you didn't like it. You know, back in those days, everybody was a farmer. They would take this salt and throw it on your field, it will kill off all your crop. Uh, a matter of fact, that, that's what happened. If you look at uh, Judges, in chapter 9, verse 45, says Abimelech fought against the city all day, and he took the city and killed people who were in it, and he demolished the city, but then all the fields, he sowed it with salt. It's that salt. He took that polluted salt, killed off all their crops. Because that salt is polluted. It's good for nothing except for one thing. And they used it to put it on the roadways. 
because they add some moisture to it, and then when it hardens, it becomes like cement. So people just walk on it. That's all it's good for. Made very good pavement. That's why he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if you lose your flavor, you become good for nothing. What's happening to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, folks? We're more concerned with culture and trying to please people instead of preaching the gospel. What's happening to Christians? We're being walked on, not necessarily so much even by the world, but by other Christians as well. And the problem is not necessarily, again, that people no longer respect believers, but the reason they don't respect believers is because we become good for nothing. Because if we offer them the same worldly solutions they have in the world, what good are you? And I said it before, the church that's like the world has nothing to offer to the world because the world needs that preserving salt. And the demand for that, folks, for that kind of salt, do you know it's at all-time high right now? And that's the last thing I want to look at. You know, when we moved here, my father was the impression that it was a Christian country. Now, I looked some things up, and again, the largest denomination in the United States is the Catholic one. Now, I don't agree with their theology, but I also believe there are some Catholics that are saved. But the, 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 I'm just going to use this as an illustration. There's about 77 million Catholics in the United States. And then the Another large denomination is Southern Baptists. There are about 14 million of them, right? So that's close to 100 million people, correct? There's about 300 million people as population of the United States. So that's one-third. One-third of people that claim to be Christians. What do those two denominations have in common? Let's say abortion. They, in the doctrinally and so forth, they're against abortion. So if we have one-third of people already, not to mention any other dis, you know, denomination because there's other denominations and so forth, but if we took all these Christians and they were all truly salt and stood even what they believe in their doctrine, you know, I don't agree with all their doctrine, but let's say they actually believe their doctrine, why is this world in such chaos? Why is prayer from schools is banned. Why was there removal of the Ten Commandments from schools? You know, that doesn't get me, even for the non-believer, it only, those Ten Commandments only influence people in a positive way, right? They say, no, we don't want that. It might influence not to kill, not to steal, not to commit adultery. We don't want that. Take that out. But what's in? Condoms, sex education, homosexuality, all this other stuff that really contributes to society in a negative way. In 1973, abortion was legalized in America. And again, now we have parades for sin. But you know, some Christians participate in those. Well, I don't believe their lifestyle, but I'm not there for supporting them. And they float on that parade with them. What happened? So if we have so many people that are professing to be Christians, what's happening to our country? Because they lost their flavor. You see, sometimes I talk to Catholics and they talk about their thing and they say, well, I don't, even though I'm Catholic, but I don't believe in that. And I'm like, well, then you're not a Catholic. You have to believe your own doctrine, right? How can you be for abortion when Catholic Church is against abortion? It defines you're not a Catholic. So what we have and what's happening is the following way of the church. Salt is becoming more useless and useless and useless. 
But at the same time, we are salt and light to the world. How are we displaying that? And you know, sometimes people say, do you think of God as judging America? I, you know, to some degree I, I do. Because you know how God judges a nation? Not necessarily with punishments, but he gives them what they want. But when they get it, they're like, oh, we don't want it. No, you wanted it, right? The Bible clearly says sinful nations get wicked leaders. You want that? You want abortion in your country? You want all these things? Here's, here, here it is. And again, going back to the point where people ask me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist, I always say I'm a realist. Because even though all these things are happening in our country, I truly believe that there's still hope. There's, we can still have revival in our families. We can still have revivals within our friends. We can still have revival in America if what? The salt gets to work. And the reason I believe that is because I believe in God. Because God is not dead. He's not old. He's not sick. He hasn't lost his power. And when I talk about revival, people don't really believe that anymore. They think, when I say the word revival, they think of like Billy Graham in a tent somewhere back in the 60s or 70s. But when you say that, if you say, I don't believe in revival anymore, I think it's just, you know, this is it. Really, that's a insult to God. You don't think God can do it? You know, I'm reminded of a story, and I'm sure you all heard of it too, about Elijah. In 1 Kings verse uh, 24 in chapter 18 says, Then you call on the name of God. Remember when he had those 400 priests and so forth. And he challenged them, says, Then you call on your name of God, and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. So all the people answered and said, It's well spoken. So they put this sacrifice and so forth, and they said, hey, you call on your God, I'll call on my God. And the one that answers and strikes the sacrifice with fire, he is the God. So they all agreed with it. And God sent fire to Elijah. But here's the interesting part of that story. He says, oh, you know, when they were calling on their God, he's kind of mocking them, saying, you got to sleep, and so forth. But then it was his turn, and he said, hey, bring some water. Pour water all over this altar. He did it like four times. It was soaked with water and so forth. But God sent fire that's still up, lit up the flames of that wet wood. That's the God we have. Because what? God is good if he can't burn wet wood anyway. Our God can do the impossible. God is still alive. Do you remember uh, the great revival on the day of Pentecost? When Peter preached, 3,000 people came to Christ and so forth. Well, those people were all wicked. They're the ones that persecuted him. And they say, Peter, what do we must do to be saved? So we can still have revival while we're still here. But the salt must get to work. You need to get your flavor back. So sometimes we look at the world and we say, oh, how sinful, how sinful. Well, where are all the righteous people at? They say, hey, look at the government. Look at the Hollywood, all these movies that they're producing. Sinful, all lustful, everything has to do with sex. There's sin, sin everywhere. Folks, God help us, there's sins in the church. How come we don't talk about that? They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? There's still time. Because that's all God really had to work with, is just wicked people all the time. And in Romans, Paul writes, moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, in Romans 5.20. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So the problem is not that God can't, but maybe there's something wrong with us. And God says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name, if you're saying you're the salt, you're displaying the characters or characteristics of the Beatitudes in the kingdom, 
those are his people, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. He's not referring to sinners here. He's not saying if sinners will return and humble themselves and so forth. He says, if my people, you call yourself a Christian? Call my my name. Pray and seek my face and turn from their, what? Wicked ways. Wicked ways is the same thing as being good for nothing. And then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And as I watch what's happening around the world in our country, I think, you know, I've been in America, what, 30-some years now. I'm more concerned about it than I ever was. I think it's time for churches to blow the trumpet. It's time for salt to work. And that's why God placed Grace Fellowship Church here, not to offer entertainment, but to be the salt and light, first of all, to the city of Vesterville, to our neighborhood around us, and then to the world. So what God's saying is he wants to take you and me, sinners saved by grace, and make us pure salt and light to the world. Because those two things influence the things around them. So what's your influence like? Not when you're in the shaker. because We all look godly and nice and clean. But when your boss ticks you off, right? Calls you at 7 o'clock in the morning and says, I need this. Because I have a meeting aid in the morning. What's your reaction? How would you handle that? How are you influencing not just the world, but let's go back a little bit. Your family. Are we righteous like Lot? Are we truly demonstrating those things in our lives? So the question is, are you the salt of the earth? And who and what are you influencing and in what way? Or you're the salt that lost its flavor. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you help us in our church be the salt of the earth. Help us to live that the world can see who you are and that we belong to you. Help us be obedient to the things that we know in your word and grow in your word. The things that belong to your kingdom. And let us be separate from the world, but in the world for your glory. And Father, we also pray for those that are affected by the hurricanes and victims of floods in our country. With all these things that are happening, many people are losing their livelihoods. But I pray that even those things are tough, that they do not lose their soul. Father, I also pray for the leadership of this country and that you give them the fear of God. Because that's the only way to wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Father. So we pray that you give them the fear of God and let them remember that there is somebody above them that gave them the positions that they have. And help us pray for them and not curse them because that's what the Word of God instructs us to do. And Father, as we leave this place this morning, I always pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.